Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke as the first book in a two-volume set, Acts being the second, to uh, certify and to validate for this man what he had been taught and what he had believed. And so kind of in our language, this is a a guy who says, listen, I want you to be sure that your Christian faith is solvent, is intellectually uh, tenable, and and that you can trust it. And so I'm going to tell you a story about the church. And I told you that when I kind of wrapped my head around that, that was a pretty convicting idea to me because I have lots of friends who the reason they don't want to be a Christian is the church, not They want to be a Christian because of the church. And so we began to say, what if we studied this book in the hopes that God would heal some of the wounds around this church and would make this church the kind of church that people who are unsure have been hurt by the church, people with questions, people with doubts could come and find answers and find family and find hope for what God's up to in this time and in this place. And so that's kind of our mission statement and our vision around this book. And we said that we wanted to introduce you to the stories and people that make the early church what it is. And so today I'm going to introduce you to a guy that, uh, that man, I, I'm excited to introduce you to this dude. His name is Stephen, and, uh, and he is a beast in every sense of the word. Uh, And so I'm excited for you to get to know him as I've studied him over the last week or so. So I'm going to have you stand with me. We're going to read his story and his introduction. We're going to read Acts 6, 8 through 15, but we're going to cover Acts 6, 8 all the way through Acts chapter 7. And just for sake of time, we're not going to get to all of that. But let me introduce him to you through Dr. Luke, and then we'll pray, and then we will get to it. And Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders... And the scribes, and they came upon him, and they seized him, and they brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing upon him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. And let's pray. God, I thank you for the testimony of Stephen. I thank you just for the encouragement and uh, for the challenge that his life is to me. And I pray that it will be to all of us today, that by your Holy Spirit, you'll encourage us. By By your Holy Spirit, you will spur us on to be more conformed into the image of your Son and to pursue all that you have for us, the fullness of all that you have for us. God, I thank you for the book of Acts. It's just been uh, incredibly, incredibly encouraging to me as I've studied it. And I I deeply want to see your spirit be at work in Damascus Road in the way that it was in this early church at Jerusalem. And so, God, we are your people dependent on your spirit. And we're coming to you and we're saying, God, we're we're open-handed. And we're asking you to fill 
us with what you want for your purposes and for your glory. We trust you. Uh, we believe in you. And we want to follow you, God. And so lead us so that we can see you. Lead us uh, as, as you promise to do faithfully and, uh, and do with us what you will. And God, we'll thank you for that in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So we pick up the story. We've been introduced to Stephen. And Stephen is teaching the Bible. And there's some people who come and want to dispute with him. And they can't, they, can't, they can't hang with the man. And so they do what anyone would do when they're losing a debate. They lie. You know, you've done that before with your wife or your husband, right? This isn't going well. I'm going to make something up. And, uh, and that lands Stephen in front of the council. He's been seized. He's been, uh, in a religious sense, arrested. Not necessarily by the government, but they're kind of trying and testing him. And the book of Acts chapter 7 is his response to their accusation that he is saying that the temple and that the law is obsolete. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Oscar Wilde is believed to have said this statement, an idea that is not dangerous is unworthy of being called an idea at all. An idea that is not dangerous is unworthy of being called an idea at all. It's an interesting statement, and I've heard many philosophers and and authors talk about the most powerful thing in the known world is an idea. And many of the things that we kind of uh, receive in common grace and God's sovereign blessing are ideas that somebody had. I always tell my wife, I love going into a major city because everything that you see was somebody's idea. So these enormous buildings and these great facades and and these uh, storefronts, somebody uh, came up with that idea and put a significant part of their life into that idea. Oscar Wilde says that an idea is only an idea if it's dangerous. And Stephen was a guy that had three dangerous ideas. Three dangerous ideas, three radical ideas that he not only believed in the kind of ideological sense, but in that kind of gut sense. You understand what I'm saying about the difference that some of us, we have ideas that they're in our head and some of us, we have ideas that are in our gut. They're the things that make us who we are. They're the things that come out of us when we're poked or when we're squeezed or when we're pressured. And Stephen had three things that he wanted to make very clear to this religious council and that I believe the Holy Spirit wants to make very clear to us. If you're taking notes, I'm going to give them to you on the front end, and then we'll go back to them. The first is the radical idea of an average Joe. The radical idea of an average Joe. The second is the radical idea of a God who is gracious. The radical idea of a God who is gracious. And the third is the radical idea of a God who makes his presence in people. The radical idea of a God who makes his presence in in people. Now the first thing that I want to introduce you to, this dangerous idea, and what we're going to do is we're going to say this is what the idea is, this is what is dangerous about it, and this is what the invitation is. This is the adventure, as it were, that God, I think, is wanting to draw us into, not only as individuals, but as a church. So let me introduce you a little bit more fully to my man, Steve. In Acts chapter 6 and in verse 3, it says this, therefore, brothers, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this day. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And that day, the saying pleased them and the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen. 
Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 8, Stephen was full of grace and of power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. When Stephen is disputed by the religious leaders, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. This man, uh, one of my favorite truths is that one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to establish his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Yeah, and he's going to make all things right. He's going to take every injustice and make it just. He's going to take every tear and wipe it away. He's going to put everything in its proper place as he ordains for his glory and the joy of all people. And that is a beautiful lighthouse truth for me. The secondary aspect to that is that when the kingdom comes and the full resurrection occurs, I'm going to get to meet some of these people. I'm going to get to hang out with Peter and be like, you're a piece of work, man. I'm going to get to hang out with David and be like, what were you thinking? I'm going to get to hang out with Solomon and be like, really, 700 girlfriends? I mean, come on. And I'm going to get to hang out with Stephen. And Stephen is a guy who... Not a lot is spoken about, but he's a guy that when you look at his quality and look at his characters, he's the kind of guy, I said at West, that if my daughter shows up with this man, I'll still have the gun out, but I'm not going to point it at anyone. (laughs) Stephen was a man, number one, who had a good reputation. Man, it's harder and harder to find a man who has a good reputation. From a broad, yeah, and all the single ladies said, you ain't kidding. (laughs) Yeah, a man who has a good reputation that the whole community agrees on. Actually, we just had this happen when we put Tony up in front of you. And we said, we're going to give you two weeks. And if you have character flaws in this man, let us know. And this community said, he's a man with a good reputation. So was Stephen. He was a man who was full of the Spirit. The Spirit of God was in control of this man. He was, he was full of the Spirit. He was showing the works of the Spirit. He was exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. He was full of wisdom. He was a wise guy and not with like a leather jacket and a bulge under his arm, right? A, a, a wise man, the kind of guy that when things aren't going well or you have a question, you call him. I don't know what to do. I'm going to call Stephen. He was a man who was full of faith, who believed that God was bigger than his circumstance, who believed that God could be trusted, who believed that sometimes the most courageous thing we can do is the most foolish thing that appears to be what we could do. He was a man who was full of grace, the kind of guy that's, that's, that's strong and soft at the same time, another very unique trait. And he was a man who was full of power, full of power. We're introduced in Acts 6, 8. He's full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. This is a, a, a magnificent guy. A magnificent guy. And we see that whenever he is stood against by the religious leaders, they bring their best debaters, their most theologically trained professionals, and they try to argue about theology and the Bible and who Jesus is. And Scripture says that they could not hang with him. They couldn't hang with him, and that they could not withstand, I love this, the wisdom and the spirit with which he said things. In other words, what he said and how he said it. You know, you run into some people and you can't stand, you have a hard time with what they say, but they say it well, or they say it terrible, but they're right. You know what I'm saying? Stephen was a guy who said the right thing at the right time in the right way, and the enemies of the gospel could not stand against it. And Stephen 
was a guy who was profoundly courageous. Profoundly courageous. These religious leaders had the power to kill him. They had the power to kill him. And they bring him in, they seize him. That's not that they invited him over for tea. They seize him and they bring him before the council. And this is one of those councils that you say a couple things wrong and you end up dead. And yet Acts chapter 7 is one of the most courageous uh, rebuttals centered on the personal work of Jesus, I believe, in the entire Bible. And it's from this guy who's full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, full of grace, full of power, saying the right thing at the right time in the right way. He's just a force of nature. And I'm studying this guy and thinking about this and thinking about DR, and I came across something that I think is pretty interesting. What was Stephen's role in the early church? Does anyone know? He had two things that he was supposed to do. He was supposed to do the daily distribution, which meant that he handed out food to widows and orphans. And he served tables. Now, when I get thinking about that kind of structure and that kind of quality guy, the thing that comes to mind is that guy served tables? I mean, that guy sounds about as exceptional as a guy can be. About as exceptional as a gal can be. This is, this is a, a, a magnificent follower of Jesus by God's grace. And his role in the church is to hand out food and to serve tables. In other words, this guy is about as average of a Joe as you can get. He's about as average of a Joe as you can get. He's not the, the, the lead guy. He's not the lead apostle. He's not a bishop. He's, not, he's a table wiper. And then that got me thinking a little bit about our understanding of average. And I started to think this. When did being exceptional become an exception rather than an expectation? I'm going to say that again. When did being exceptional for the kingdom of God become an exception rather than an expectation. This guy was exceptional and his exceptionality in that church made him average. And that bothers me tremendously. This guy is average enough that whenever the apostles say, we need some help, people don't say, we'll make Stephen an apostle. And whenever the apostles say, pick how many? Seven dudes. Not pick the very best, not pick the most exceptional. Pick seven people so that they can do the daily handout of food and wipe tables. And Stephen is not the one, he's one of seven. Under 12. He's not at the top of the pyramid, he's not the most exceptional. And the thing that bothers me about it is that I'm afraid that if we took this guy and put him in this context, not only would he be at the top of the pyramid, he would be at the top of the top of the pyramid. And here's the thing that bothers me about this. I'm afraid that we have gotten to a place, whether out of insecurity, whether out of apathy, whether out of um, guilt, that we don't expect the people of God to live in the fullness that he has for them. 
And because I know that I'm not, I'm not going to get on you about you not. And what ends up happening is that the mean of the quality of the men and women who make the church ends up something like this. How was your time with the, with, with the Lord this week? Oh man, I was really busy. Verses full of grace, full of power, full of faith, full of wisdom, said the right thing the right way at the right time, was able to stand up against the religious leaders, encourage, put his life on the line, and that guy just being one of the guys. What would it be if DR was the kind of place that the person who put the coffee out was like this? What would it be if DR was the kind of place that the brand new kids worker was like this? Not because they were exceptional, but because that's what we expected people who God had saved and empowered to look like. And because we weren't the kind of church that out of guilt or apathy or insecurity just said, if you won't look at me, I won't look at you. But rather we said, we want to be, what was the characteristic that you see over and over again? Full. Full of. The radical idea of getting everything that God has for you. The radical idea of being used profoundly. The radical idea of saying, this much isn't enough because I know that God has this much, and I know that God created me for this much, and I know that right now I'm not full of much other than myself. The kind of place where I'm allowed to say, and you're allowed to say, no, that's not good enough. Where I'm allowed to say, God is bigger than that. Where I'm allowed to say, you're not investing, you're not following, you're not seeking, you're not passionate, you're busy, and that's not okay because God is bigger. I'm bothered when the table wiper is this. And if I'm completely honest with you, and the elder is this. I'm bothered that we've let one another, as a church, as a community, take less than God has for us. I'm bothered that I don't know many people who are full of the Spirit who are full of grace, and maybe it's the quantities that concern me, but I think what it really gets to is that this is a pretty radical idea that's exceptionally dangerous. And why is it dangerous? What if a group of people really said, God, whatever you have, man, the answer is yes. Not just in a prayer, not just in preacher talk. What if, what if we were the kind of community that we said, our arms are empty, make them full with whatever you want. And this community was the kind of place where we said, you're, you're not full enough yet. Not out of guilt, not out of legalism, but out of love and expectancy. What, what would this kind of community become? And here's the answer. I don't know. And that's scary. And here's what I find out whenever I start thinking about these ideas of faith and God doing whatever he wants with me. I find out that I don't really trust God because what's scary about it is that I think that God might run me into traffic. Right? I mean, can we be straight with one another? We're afraid that if we say, okay, God, come to my rescue, like we sing. If we say, okay, God, Whatever you want, whenever you want it, however you want it, I'm your guy, I'm your gal, I want everything that you have for me, 
We think that God is not trustworthy with that kind of commitment. And because I think that, and I don't want you to bug me about it, you leave me alone and I leave you alone, and then neither of us are full of anything. And then we spend time asking people to volunteer instead of expecting them to be full. I'm bothered by this guy, Stephen. I'm bothered by this church. I'm bothered by the expectancy that seems so incredibly high. And I think the reason that it bothers me is because I spend so much time looking at me instead of him. You see, that list to God is nothing, right? God isn't looking at that guy and saying, Stephen is an exceptional young man. God's looking at that guy and saying, that's what I do with people who follow me. There are so many things that have to be true about a man, have to be true about a woman, have to be true about a community for the table wiper to look like that. And I want all of them. I want all of them. And that's a dangerous idea. But here's the other, the other aspect of it. You know what? I'm going to hold off with what the opportunity around that is because I want you to see at the very end. Cliffhanger. All right. Radical idea number two is this radical idea of a God who is gracious. Stephen finds himself in front of the religious council, in front of the people who have the Old Testament memorized, in front of the people who have devoted their lives to the service of God as understood by the Jewish people. Stephen, the table wiper, is in front of these people and they say, we have heard that you are teaching... That Jesus makes the law obsolete. Now you have to understand that the law is the framework in which the Jews understood God. And so they're saying essentially you're hacking away at the foundational pillar of our faith. And if they believe that, let's be straight, they should respond to Stephen the way that they did. And Stephen responds with a history lesson. Stephen responds with the history of the Jews to the religious leaders of the Jews. And here's what he says. Let me introduce you to a guy by the name of Abraham. Abraham was nobody. He was living with his dad in his mom's basement. That's not true. I added that, okay? (laughs) Um, And God comes to him and says, I want you to go to a place that I'll tell you once you obey me. You know, God does that a lot. You obey me and I'll let you know once you're there. (laughs) He comes to Abram And Stephen's point is, we serve a God who when we didn't know who he was, we didn't know that he was at work, he began to be at work to make us who we are long before we had any idea what was happening. We didn't know God was at work, but he was. Let me introduce you to a guy by the name of Joseph. Joseph's brothers betrayed him and sold him into slavery. Joseph was falsely accused. Joseph ended up in a dungeon. And at the end of Joseph's life, religious leaders, he said, all of these things that you meant for harm, God meant for good. And he says to the religious leaders, our story is that there are many who have meant our harm, but God used it for our good. He says, let me introduce you to a guy by the name of Moses. Our people, the Jewish people, were in slavery in Egypt and God raised up an Egyptian And that Egyptian, he called away and he called him to redeem that people and he redeemed you out of slavery when you were insignificant and when you were in bondage. When you didn't have anything to offer God and you weren't of any special value and when you didn't have any way to save yourself, God was at work and God redeemed. 
And then you got out into the wilderness and you were homeless and you had no direction. And so God called Moses up onto the mountain and he gave him the law. And that law gave you direction. And that law gave you, uh, gave you a way to frame life and a way to frame government. And you didn't have a home and so I gave you a land. And you didn't have a God, so I gave you a God and I made my presence in the tabernacle among you and I lived with you and I led you and I loved you. Here's what Stephen's saying to the religious leaders. He says, you come to me and you accuse me of speaking against the law. And look at what he says in Acts chapter 7 and verse 53. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Here's what he says. You have to understand that when your religious framework is of effort, let's just use that as a synonym for the law, you can think that that's the way that God is dealing with you, but God is always dealing with you according to grace. You see, we bring our best efforts to God, and we work as hard as we can to be pleasing to Him, and what had happened to the religious leaders is that they become so identified to their effort that they thought that was the reason God was at work. Stephen says, God's always been at work before you had any idea who he was. God's always been at work to lead you and to save you and to redeem you and to make a place for you and to be a God to you and to protect you and to bring you to a good place even when others meant you harm. God has always been doing that by your grace, by his grace, not because of your effort. And this is an incredibly important truth for you and I. It's an incredibly important truth for you and I because how many of you would say, at the time that God saved me, I wasn't looking for him? I would say that. I grew up in church all my life, and when God saved me, I wasn't looking for him. Just like Abraham was just living life in his mom's basement. And God was already at work when he didn't know. How many of you would say, there have been times when people meant my harm, but God used it for my good? That's my story too. How many of you would say, God saved me when I didn't have anything to offer him, and when I couldn't save myself? How many of you would say, without God, I didn't have a home, I didn't have a direction, I didn't have a way to structure and orient my life, and God provided me with himself, God provided me with his grace, God provided me with purpose, God made me a part of a spiritual family, God has been good to me by his grace. Yeah, you see, Acts 7 is the story of the Jewish people and you and I, and it's not a story of effort, it's a story of grace. Grace then, the grace of God means not that when God met me, he met me in my success. He met me in my, in my failure. God didn't meet me in my abundance. He met me in my need. God didn't meet me when I didn't need anything. He met me when I didn't have anything to offer him and I didn't have anything to give him and I wasn't especially purposeful and he came to me in those and he provided good for me, listen, at his cost. At his cost means that the grace of God makes way for me to be a part of his family, not just as distant cousin, but as his son and as his daughter. The grace of God, listen, is entirely dependent on him and entirely free to me. And Stephen says, you guys are coming at me with all your religious effort, not understanding that the only way you could be efforting is the grace of God. This is a radical and dangerous idea. The idea that God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. I'm going to be honest with you. 
We've had people leave this church over that idea. You cannot do in saving yourself, in transforming yourself. You can't do it, and neither can I. And the times that I feel like my very best effort is being given to it, that in and of itself is out of the grace of God. And so Stephen puts this radical idea that is everything that you have, everything that you are, everything that's good is only by the grace of God. In any attempt to effort to gain that acceptance is like sand through your fingers. The harder you squeeze, the easier it falls out. The religious leaders had based their entire faith upon their best effort. And they're furious when someone says, that's not good enough. Jesus comes along and he does for me in keeping the law what I I can't do for myself, man. And I love you. And I'm sure that you are a much better, much more disciplined, much more godly person than me. I don't have any problem believing or saying that. But you cannot achieve the standard of perfection outside of the grace of God. And the only way that the standard of perfection is met and offered to your account is in the person and work of Jesus. That's it. That's the only way and it's dangerous because it's humiliating isn't it that's why it's dangerous because true full comprehensive grace means that I have to come to the end of myself and that's scary means that I have to say at a totalitarian level at a at a overarching level I can't do it And we're Americans, and we can do whatever we put our mind to. The opportunity to find out that in coming to the end of myself, I'm given everything. The opportunity to realize that in my humiliation, I'm given place in the family. The opportunity to say, all of the worship goes to him, all of the significance goes to him, all of the glory goes to him and find that in giving everything to him, I become whole. I become whole. This is a counterintuitive, radical, dangerous idea. And Stephen punctuates it by saying, look, here's the thing, y'all. Your effort, you suck at it. You're terrible at it. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Really? You want to defend your effort? How's that going? You want to defend your, the best you have to offer, the consistency of your faithfulness, the consistency of your integrity? Really? That's what you want to bank it on? No, 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 no. Come to the end of ourselves. Come to the end of ourselves and find wholeness in Him. The third radical idea First of the average Joe, of a God who is gracious, and then of a God who makes his presence in people. The second accusation to my man, Stephen, is that he was making the temple obsolete. He's making the temple obsolete. And here's how I want you to understand this. The Jewish faith had been reduced to place and form. 
where we meet and what we do when we meet. Now, a lot of us um, think that that sounds ridiculous, but we kind of give ourselves away in this way. My kid said to me two days ago, hey, dad, are we going to go to church on Sunday? And what did I say? Yes, we are going to go to church. That's where we meet. And when you come to this building, do you have an expectation about what's going to happen? You do. What is that? Place and form. See, this is part of the the human bent. And this is why it's so dangerous because our bents are where we're comfortable and the gospel comes along and tries to bend us the other way. The, the Hebrew faith had become about a place and about a way that we do our faith. A culture with a location. Look at what Stephen says about this in 7 and verse 48. Yet the Most High... He does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet said. And God's going to talk a little smack here, all right? Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. God says, look, <laughs> I rest my feet on the earth. He says, what kind of house are you going to build for me? I mean, you've got to read this. Don't, don't read it religiously. What kind of house are you, will you build? No. God's like, what kind of house are you going to build for me? Where, where are you going to put me that's suitable for me, or what kind of place will be of my rest? Did not my hands make all of these things? Here's what God's saying. God's saying, what kind of box are you going to put me in that I'm going to wait for you to show up? You think I live here? I rest my feet on this. You think, you think that you can contain God to place and form? You think that, you think that God is, is submitted to the, the shape that we put him in? Stephen says, verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ear, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. Listen, I think that this is... This is a radical and dangerous idea, especially when you punctuate it with you stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard people. That kind of adds to the danger. But here's the idea. (laughs) Stephen is saying, the faith, your faith cannot hold God in a box and God is not beholden to the forms that you think invite him. Okay? Like how when we say, we're going to pray and and ask you to come. We're going to do this, and then you have to come. No, God says that. I come when I want, and I stay where I want, and I do what I want because I'm God. And the faith isn't about place and form. It's about whether or not you know me. Church is not a building with a liturgy. It's a group of people who know and love God. And people that know and love God, God makes his presence not in a place where they come, not according to a liturgy that they follow, but in them. And as they know God, listen to me, and because they know God, every day is Sunday, 
and every act is an act of worship. See, it's easier to say, I came to church and it went well. It's dangerous to say, God is here with me doing whatever he wants for his glory and everything I do is either an act of worship or idolatry. Everything. It changes, it changes everything. And so the danger, the danger is in thinking that you're coming to a place that God is and doing something that God shows up to for all your life and finding out he didn't come to any of it. He wasn't here. And the danger is I'm going to stop marginalizing God and I'm going to give God everything in the belief that God is everywhere, that he has a plan and a purpose and that my singular aim is to know him. And my singular aim is to worship him. And that everything that I do because of his grace is for him. This is a dangerous, dangerous idea because it would change, listen, every aspect of your life. If you believe that God was present on Tuesday morning on your way into work, as much as you believe functionally he is when you come into this building, it would change everything. And so Stephen says, you think you're doing law, but you're doing grace. And you think God's here, but he's not. And look at their response. Now when they had heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. These ideas were so dangerous that it cost Stephen his life. And I believe that any one of them would have. Because if you take all of these ideas and you put any one of them in practice in your life, it will change your entire life. If you believe that exceptional is not an exception, it's an expectation, that will change your life. If you believe that there is no amount of effort that will gain you acceptance, that you already have it in the grace of God, that will change your life. If you believe that God is not in a place that you go, and that you invite him by what you do, but that God is present and that you can know him and have a relationship with him, that will change your life. And those ideas got, got Stephen killed by the religious norm. The second response was in verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus, what? Someday, you are going to draw your last breath. And you are going to enter into whatever reality of eternity that there is. The singular aim of your life ought to be that your Savior meets you at the gate. I mean, can you, can you imagine being Stephen? And look, courage isn't the absence of fear. Stephen knows when they trip out, he's about to die. Looks up into heaven 
And Jesus stands up. Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, stands up. And he looks into heaven and he sees approval from his Savior. I want you to see the third response. Verse 58, then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Sometimes an idea begins to take form in our hearts. An idea that is, God, I want everything that you have for me. And I don't know what that look like, looks like and that scares me, but... I'm going to stop being okay and satisfied with an apathetic minimum. And I'm going to go all in. An idea like, I'm going to stop believing that my effort gains me acceptance. And I'm going to stop believing that I'm accepted as a son and a daughter permanently. I'm going to stop believing that I dictate to God by an address and a religious form. And I'm going to believe that God is present in my life and in my heart. And God does what he wants for his glory and my joy. Those ideas begin to take form in our hearts. And they begin to change who we are. And we don't know what the impact of them is. Just like Stephen didn't know that, listen, the guy who was holding the coat of the people who were killing him so they could get a better range of motion with the stones they were throwing would become the apostle to the Gentiles. Let me put that in perspective for you. We are introduced to the guy who planted churches to Gentile nations that are the foundation for your faith in the story of a table wiper who believed what God said. You don't know what God will do with your life if you give it all to him. You don't know what God will do with your life If you say, I believe you when you say you're gracious. You don't know what God will do with your life if you say, I believe that you're here and I want to give you everything that you're worthy of. You don't know, just like Stephen didn't know, that the man who was holding the coats would become one of the most significant evangelists and apostles of the gospel to found the gospel that you and I heard and accepted. But God did. And because Stephen was faithful with wiping stupid tables. You and I heard the gospel. Because Stephen had the courage in the face of his own death to say, no, God is a God of grace. God is here, God is present, God is not beholden to you or I. It made him exceptional and God changed my eternity with it. What does God want to do with you? You'll never know if you don't give him the opportunity. What does God want to do with me? It's a dangerous idea. I'm all in. I'm tired. I'm tired of half. I'm tired of not quite. I'm tired of being tired. Whatever. I'm all in. Let's do it. What are you going to do with us, God? What are you going to do with Damascus Road? What are you going to do with my life? I believe you're gracious. I believe you're here. I want to be full of you. Let's go. Let's do it. Change eternity with this place. Stand with me.
Today is one of those days of, of response, right? Of you responding to three ideas that were put in front of you by the life of Stephen. And you saying, I don't think that's true. Or you saying, I'll think on these things. Or you saying, if that's true, that changes everything and I'm in. And so maybe some of you, you feel like, man, I need to pray right now. Lucky for you, we have a prayer team. <laughs> they will be to my left, to your right. They would love to pray with you. We come and we observe the Lord's Supper to realize the foundation of our faith is a person, not an idea. His name is Jesus and he shed his blood on a cross that we remember with communion. And because of who he is and what we've done, what he's done, we give and we sing. And so today, I want you to just take a couple minutes. I just want you to talk to God. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to just give you a couple minutes and then Dan and the team will lead us. God, I don't, I don't want this to be some emotional thing. I don't want this to be some preacher talk. This was a real man who lived a real life and who believed that you were a real God. And God, I'm bothered by his quality. I'm bothered by what you made him. I'm bothered by how pitiful my life looks compared to his. God, instigate us. Speak to our hearts. Lead us into places that terrify us but change eternity. And do it for your glory. And do it by your power. So we can rejoice in who you are and what you've done. And say only our God, who's that gracious, who's that present, who takes lives and transforms them that exceptionally. Only he does that. Receive our worship. Receive our praise. Receive us as we remember your son and what he's done. And accomplish what you will for your glory and our joy. Amen.